In 2017, the Academy Awards gave the Oscar for Best Picture to La La Land. And then a minute later, they took it back and gave it to Moonlight instead. What if we could do that every year? It's time for the Moonlight Awards, a journey through movie history. One year, five nominees, and one new Best Picture at a time. Now, here are your hosts, Rachel Shavitz and Aaron Keck. Hey, welcome into the Moonlight Awards. So we are about to start the 1940s, but before we do, we wanted to just take one little extra episode and look back at the decade that was in the 1930s. So Yeah, it's worth it. I mean, this was the beginning of the golden age of Hollywood. So it certainly deserves some time to just kind of look at the decade. What shifted? What changed? Why do we call this the golden era? Do you think we should call it the golden era? Like, what is if you're if you're just like picking your favorite decade? What what's uh, the, no? It's what's not the just the decade. Period? They consider it going all the way up through like World War II. So like oh for sure the, right. The first six years of the forties will continue to be the golden era. There is some nostalgia wrapped into that too. It was the height of the studio system and the star system. So it's when a few moguls controlled like all of the storytelling coming out of Hollywood and who was in what part had nothing to do with who was best for the part or who wanted the part and everything to do with who was in charge. And so people were machines. They were just put into the movies that they want, you know, that the studio has wanted them to be in. It's like the whole world is a big Busby Berkeley musical then. (laughs) Not quite as beautiful, but close. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So the way you're just describing that, like the the golden age is the studio system where the moguls controlled everything like that to me. And, and you're the, you're the film scholar between the two of us. So, so tell me if this is right. Like that seems to be completely at odds with, and just in direct contrast to auteur theory or, Right. Well, I think sometimes moguls recognized the value of having an auteur and would let them do their thing. So this would be like a John Ford who had a look uh, of this Monument Valley sort of vastness and the type of characters and the type of like clean storytelling with very little dialogue and everything is visually told in the story. And you can tell a John Ford film, even if the sound is off and you're just watching it for 30 seconds. And studios recognize that that was something the audiences would, would want to see and would just give John Ford the things that he needed to do his John Ford thing. It just had to be part of that system. Much of the films of this time were not auteur films. They were productions cobbled together by these moguls who picked a producer and picked a director and picked a stars out of their, you know, <laughs> off the shelf. Just like go down the starlet <laughs> shelf and pick one. Go down the leading man shelf. Do you want Clark Gable or do you want Gregory Peck or do you want Jimmy Stewart or do you want, you know, Cary Grant? Here you go. And just put them together and hope that the recipe would work. Mostly that's how it went. One of the cool things that I learned, I love doing this project because I'm learning so much. Uh, I was not super aware of Leo McCary as a mm. great director, but he, he really is from that decade. Yeah, good with dialogue. I think maybe wouldn't have been so great in the silent film era. Not a visual storyteller so much as really good at directing actors and and getting that rapid fire 
witty banter to play really well. And that's a skill. That's a tough thing to pull off. And and he was one of the best for sure. So what happens in the 1930s? Like we started, we're still like just getting out of the silence. By the time we get to the end of the decade, yeah. we've got these huge sweeping epics and Technicolor and all this totally. amazing stuff. So what yeah, happens? Yeah, it's a cool decade to look at. One thing I always try to look at when I'm looking at what films are successful is like what's happening in the world or in the country at the time that might influence what kind of stories are being told or what stories people want to see. So we're coming into and out of the Great Depression in the United States and in Europe, they're recovering from their own depression, you know, economic depression post World War One. And then the rise of fascism in Europe as we enter into World War Two. So all of these pieces are sort of like a perfect recipe for escapism in film. We want to get out of our tenements and into a beautiful movie theater for 25 cents and watch another world. And so we see different approaches to that kind of escapism that are sort of big buckets that films kind of fall into. And so we can think about fantasy, sort of like another world. I want to go to another world. And that would be all our great horror films from the early 1930s, Frankenstein and all the Draculas, King Kong even, Tarzan, even later in the 30s when we see Snow White and Wizard of Oz, we're excited to be out of the current world that we live in and into somewhere totally oh, different. Oh man, do you put Gone with the Wind in that category? Because <laughs> I feel like that would go into that, like a different time rather than a different, well I guess Definitely. in a different world too. Yeah. No, because so escapism is not just about a, a fantasy world, but it's about it could be another time when things were better, quote unquote, yeah. right? Quote and unquote. so yeah. we we see that in any in uh, uh, all cultures do this French film and British film and German film Japanese and Chinese films like people love to remember a f mostly fictionalized rosy past and glorify it and glamorize it and certainly Gone with the Wind would go great into that category all right yeah. I, I think it's i think it's interesting like we associate the 30s with escapism to the point where like one of my favorite woody allen movies is purple rose of cairo which is all about that like the the woman who goes to the theater for escapism yep. and like that's the that's just the image of 1930s cinema that we got and then we get into 19, the 1940s which is almost worse in terms of the the situation that people were facing in life and Rather than escapism in the 1940s, they kind of go into noir, which is diving yeah. into the muck of how just <laughs> nasty the world is, which I think is funny. Yeah. I, you know, trends are, are ebbs and flows, right? And sometimes something kind of burns itself out. And maybe you can only watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers like glide across a ballroom floor so many times before you're kind of yeah. over it. And yeah. I think MGM just crushed this dream factory, gorgeous people in gorgeous places doing gorgeous things for a decade. And by the end, things wane at wax and wane and Westerns fell out of favor until Stagecoach came back in 1939. And then they had this big sort of resurgence. And in many ways, this escapism of beautiful, fantastic, high society living does fall out of favor in the 40s for a variety of reasons that we'll get into more when we when we do those years. But you're absolutely right. Our escapism changes in the 40s. What have we learned about like what films stand the test of time because that's that's the point of the 
Moonlight. It's like what film actually like 90, 80, 70 years later <laughs> still gets watched, still gets acclaimed, still gets held up as being well-made and iconic and influential. Like what actually what films actually stand up? I think that the films that work best much later, like after their time in which they're made, are the ones that are trying to make a statement rather than just tell a story. So from our decade, that might include All Quiet on the Western Front, which is trying to be the last war film, like the most anti-war of all war films, the the film that will end wars in the world. It's trying to harness the unbelievable power of the cinema, all of the pieces of the puzzle, right? The lighting, the cinematography, the performances, the music, the editing, every single aspect of the craft, we're gonna take them to their utmost ability level in this one work of art and make a point. Those are the kind of films that I think stand up. And so other films that I think we're trying to say something would be modern times. We're trying to navigate the Great Depression by commenting on humanity and work and automation and what does it mean to be useful in this society and how can we make sure we don't lose our humanity in the face of industrialization, these sorts of things. Films that we didn't talk about a ton, but were important in their time and are interesting like time capsules would be a lot of the Warner Brothers gangster movies and like social problem pictures from the early 30s, pre-code, right? So like I'm a fugitive from a chain gang, which is looking at like prison conditions and prison reform. And 1936, we talked about Fury, which is about a lynch mob. And so films that I think are trying to do more than just tell a like, does he get the girl story that try to do a little bit more, do you hold up better? Because those problems are still here. We're still talking about war and humanity in the face of industry and prison reform and lynching. Like these issues, sadly, are absolutely of the moment in 2020. You mentioned I am a fugitive from a chain gang. So uh, looking at the looking at the data that we looked at for, for all of these years to try to identify which movies should be nominated, which movies should win. We had a panel of about 20 film scholars who weighed in with their choices for each individual year. The top movie of the decade with our film scholars that did not get nominated for its year was I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. No way. Yeah. No way. 90, I'm, 95 total points, and we did a, so, a ranked voting that is system. awesome. That is yeah. so great. Um, and, you know, most people haven't seen it. It's, like, not on, on lists. It's not on syllabi. That's so interesting. I'm so amazed by that. That's also part of a, a consequence of, like, the year that it was in, too, because uh, our, our panel all also really liked Story of the Last Chrysanthemum. Didn't quite get as many points as I'm a Fugitive. But I think if you asked our panelists, they would probably say Chrysanthemum is better. It was just a 1939 movie. So there's a lot of other movies from that year, right? Yeah, and I I love Dark Victory from 39, and that doesn't get any love either because of all the other stuff it's up against. (laughs) So that's the top film not nominated with our panel. Uh, I looked at IMDb, and you you can actually rank movies according to the number of votes that they get 
uh, so you can get a sense of what is the the most viewed movie. And on IMDb, we did a pretty good job, like recognizing at least nominating all of the the top movies that still get watched today. The most viewed film from the 1930s that we did not nominate or talk about was The Invisible Man from 1933, ironically. Interesting. Which is not even one of the top 20 most watched movies of the decade. It's 23. So I think we did I think we did pretty well. And that's a that's a James Whale horror movie. So I think we did a pretty good job uh, recognizing James Whale. Absolutely. And and I, I could have thrown it in with my other fantastic films and rattled it off just now when we were we were going through the list. Something else that um, occurs to me as, as we were talking about sort of like escapism is comedy. And I think comedy is so specific. It's culturally specific. People from other, you know, comedy doesn't travel well around the world. French, what's funny in France is very different than what's funny in England, which is very different from what's funny in the States or in China. It's really hard to make a globally successful, funny film. And it's also specific to its time. It's usually making jokes at the expense of, you know, pop culture of the moment or things that are happening in in that time and place. And so usually comedy doesn't stand the test of time. But from this decade, we have the Marx Brothers and they hold up in many ways. I think Laurel and Hardy, which were their contemporaries and certainly almost as successful as the Marx Brothers in that time, I don't think have held up as well. But um, I think it's so interesting and kind of a testament to the Marx Brothers that they're still getting sent up all the time. People are still ripping off the Marx Brothers today. It's kind of amazing because comedy can be so of the moment and of the culture and of the time. Yeah, I'm looking I'm looking at our, our list of which movies got nominated and which ones won. And yeah, there's certain categories of comedy. There's there's the Marx Brothers. Chaplin still holds up like that's universal. And screwball comedies and romantic comedies also yeah. hold up if they're done really, really well. Right. And I think those are also some films that kind of tend to get lost in the shuffle as being kind of like fluffy chick flicks or whatever and and they don't get the they're just desserts those are some of the wittiest scripts in american film history the dialogue is so spectacular the comedic timing that it takes to pull off that kind of banter is really really tough and we you know we get some of the best in in the business in this era with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert in 1934 with it happened one night which is kind of one of the first yep. but uh, we're going to see as we start into the 40s the real heyday of this screwball comedy with these fast talking female leads who can keep up with or even best their male counterparts and that is kind of revolutionary from a like a feminist perspective in the 1930s. We've got Betty Davis and Marlena Dietrich and Catherine Hepburn and Myrna Loy and Claudette Colbert, these like tough, smart, fast talking women who hold their own in these male dominated spaces and pave the way for a culture that can send the boys to war and send the women to the factories in the Mm -hmm. mid 40s. And I think it would have been a much tougher sell, a much harder thing to do had we had uh, a bunch of demure damsels in distress all through the 1930s as we had in the 10s and 20s. This is a shift. This is watching powerful women 
take care of themselves and tussle, verbally spar with Clark Gable and Cary Grant. It seems frivolous, but I do think it had an impression on young women and men in America who just six years after this will be at war and have to shift dramatically the gender roles that they have their parents had and their grandparents had before them. And I think that is an, it's an impressive thing that happens in this decade of film. And I'm looking, you're exactly right. I'm looking at 1940, like all of the movies that we're trying to decide between to figure out what our five nominees are going to be. Like 1940 is just the apex year for screwball comedies and romantic totally. comedies. And like the top three are His Girl Friday, Philadelphia Story, and The Shop Around the Corner. Not all of them are going to be nominees, but those are three movies that stand out. And two of those three really make it a point to emphasize the fact that it's not just a woman in a romantic relationship. It's a working woman in a romantic relationship. Yeah. Often wearing trousers. I mean, let's get real. Like, this is no joke. This is real. This is... (laughs) I think it's... um, it's crazy to women today, but um, to, to think that that was revolutionary and like rule breaking and boundary pushing, but it absolutely was. And it wasn't B movies. It wasn't on the fringe. These were the biggest stars from the biggest studios. Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday is a reporter and she is on the beat working every day. You know, I, I think it's really great. And you're absolutely right that the, the 40 is kind of 1940 is the apex, but we, we couldn't have gotten there without all these other great romantic comedies leading up to 1940. And I think we talked a little bit about the production code during some of the different episodes in the 30s, but that had a huge impact on the films of the 30s. 1934 is when it really started mm-hmm. getting enforced. And because of its restrictions on immorality, you know, perceived immorality and um, what that would do to a romantic relationship that doesn't end in a sort of traditional marriage, it forced these screenwriters and filmmakers to get creative and to do, to make these interesting plots and characters like that we see in the in the screwball comedies to get around the ridiculous rules of the code and it's one of the perfect examples of sort of necessity is the mother of invention like okay you say my characters can't have all this sexual tension and and banter unless they get married at the end you know okay i'll figure it out i'll I'll invent (laughs) some a crazy script that will allow I'll, I'll follow your rules in letter, if not in, in spirit. So part of the point of this project was that, okay, the, the Oscars give out Best Picture every single year, but they're giving out the Best Picture of that year, and there's no way to know when you're doing that, like what actually is going to be recognized 50 years down the road and which movies are going to be mostly forgotten. So part of this was going through each individual year and correcting some of the wrongs. Like, oh, this movie won Best Picture in 1936 or whatever, but we don't watch it anymore. Why not recognize Modern Times or something along those lines? Mm -hmm. In Mm -hmm. that vein, what's the biggest wrong that we corrected? Gosh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think we gave a lot of love to M., Yes. Which I don't think Americans in the 30s were were tuned into it at all. I think, um, you know, one of the things that happened in the 30s is we see film technology is just like exponentially growing each year. It's getting better and better. And it's allowing 
these filmmakers to really become artists. Up until the 30s, it's sort of like, we've got to play and we're going to put a camera in front of the stage <laughs> and like, it's going to be a movie and you're going to love it. Um, but now we've got sync sound. We've The cameras are getting lighter and more mobile and they can track along beside a stagecoach or track along next to Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. You know, we can move, we can cut, we can have dialogue and music and sound effects and all these sorts of things. And it gets more and more complicated and complex, but also more art. Like we're able to make it more an art form and less a documentation of a play on a stage. And M is so early into that world. The use of shadow and light, the use of sound. I mean, it's just, it's a really ahead of its time kind of film that I feel like definitely wasn't recognized as it should have been in its era. And, and hopefully we, we righted that a little bit. What do you think? I, I still love modern times. I mean, we talked about this in the 1936 episode. Like everybody talks about the scene where he gets sucked into the gears. <laughs> like that's the iconic scene. There, there have all, if you start watching that movie, there are already like two other equally iconic moments or that should be equally iconic moments before you even get to the gear scene, which is super early on. I love the scene at the end of the movie where, again, talking about film technology, like Chaplin has been this silent film star for decades. We're finally going to hear him speak. And he's going to insist on doing it in the form of absolute gibberish, which is just brilliant as all hell. Way to set up um, an expectation and then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and then and then deliver on it in a way and you you've talked about this so many times and it's absolutely true like setting up an expectation and then delivering on it but don't deliver on it the way that your audience expects you to like right. deliver on it give the audience what they don't realize they want mm-hmm. and he is so perfect at that oh yeah i, I would if we were going to vote like best of the decade it might be modern times yeah cuz it's doing all the things that we're talking about it's making uh, a statement that is trying to be bigger than just this two hours you're in the theater. It's um, a a true artist at the top of his game. The production design is second to none. The technological, you know, use of the camera in interesting ways is happening. Even, you know, a sort of reluctant incorporation of sound and then using that to just like knock it out of the park with something completely outside the box and unexpected and very Chaplin. It's ticking every box that that we're talking about in this decade. Any final thoughts before we move on to the 40s? No, I'm good. I mean, I think the 30s was such a fun, diverse, interesting decade. I'm, I feel like something that might happen in the 40s is that the studio system is going to start to break apart for a couple of reasons, and we're going to get to hear from different filmmakers that we haven't been able to hear from yet. And that's going to bring some new exciting films into our conversation, hopefully. Just kind of a a teaser for a later episode, 1943, which is such a weird year for film because we're in the middle of the war. No one's really making much of anything at all. No movie from 1943 even won the Oscar for Best Picture because they gave it to Casablanca that year, and that's technically (laughs) 1942. So, like, you think about 1943 movies, and I guarantee you most people will draw a blank, but that means that some of the films that we're going to be talking about from that year are just wild and crazy movies that I had never even heard of before we started this project, and now I've 
have just been introduced into a world of, and, and it's it's meshes of the afternoon is what it is. Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. There's some crazy stuff that happens. Silent when, craziness. Yeah. yeah. When you let artists make movies instead of like a studio film, mm-hmm. like studio heads who want to make money, <laughs> that's when things get really interesting. And I yeah. think it's also like I love teaching about propaganda, and in the early '40s, we get some crazy, oh. amazing attempts at propaganda, both from all <laughs> different sides. I'm in particular, yeah. I'm thinking of a film in '43 that I don't even know if we're gonna have the time to talk about called Hitler's Children. Yeah, good times. I'm looking at the the votes that we've gotten from our from our panel of scholars. Uh, Hitler's Children was not one of the no, movies that we gave them in the list. <laughs> Nor uh, should it be. <laughs> it has been it has been uh, selected as a write-in vote by one of our scholars. <laughs> It's got to be a joke. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So let's move ahead to uh, to 1940. Are you ready for the nominees? I am really excited. Tell me what they are. This is because so many years from the 1930s, like it's going to be like, oh, we're definitely nominating these two or these three. And then we had to kind of reach to fill out our, our top five. And then you get to 1940 and there's like eight or nine different movies that all should be nominees. So Ooh. some movies that should be nominated are unfortunately not going to be. But here are our top five uh, for 1940. Fantasia, mm-hmm. The Grapes of Wrath, The Great Dictator, His Girl Friday, yes, and Rebecca. Yeah. Which here's something we haven't talked about yet, which is the fact that Alfred Hitchcock keeps getting nominated and not winning. Yeah, I know. I mean, come on. He's going to win. It's going to be we fine. Know that I'm he's not gonna worried win. about yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> this might get to be like a running thing, though, because yeah. we've already seen, what was it, 39 Steps, Sabotage. Lady Vanishes, your favorite. Lady Vanishes, which we both really liked from 38 but didn't win. Rebecca is going to be definitely in the conversation, but if it doesn't win, then he might get nominated a few more times in the 40s and also not win. So, you know, he's going to win for Vertigo. So it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Like, but by the time we get around to Vertigo, it's just going to be the celebration of Alfred Hitchcock because he'll have been nominated like 27 different yeah, times. Like, who was it? Susan Lucci or somebody who got nominated 35 times before she yep, won or something? Yep. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock is the Susan Lucci of the Moonlight Awards. I think he's turning. I- there's the quote of the decade right there all right next episode uh we'll get into the 1940s it's going to be a real good year yeah for sure this has been so great thanks aaron awesome see you next time bye